0: We had Pam sing once. <laughs> Just once. In fact, I think we stopped her in the middle. Just kidding you, Pammy. I love you. You're laughing at John. I heard you sing too. <laughs> Amen. John's like me. He only knows two songs. One of them's in the sweet by and by, and the other one isn't. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1, 2, and 3. Well, I'll tell you what, I've enjoyed the book of Nehemiah. Um, uh, We're going to be in Nehemiah here for, uh, just to give you kind of a heads up here, we'll be in Nehemiah here for maybe another month or so. I'm going to talk about all the different aspects, but you know, I I never want to just do something for the sake of, you know, I want to do it. So be thinking about what you'd want me to teach and preach on after we're done with the study in Nehemiah. You can come up and tell me and you know, and put a little bug in my ear and tell me what you'd like this or like that. And if I get enough people to say the same thing, uh, you know, uh, we'll do it. I mean, or, if, you know, if God gives, just speaks to my heart, that's what you need to do. And I'm always looking for, I'm not somebody to just say this is what I'm going to do and that's it. I like to hear what you think and what you want. So, I mean, when I'm preaching, I'm preaching for you and for me. And as a body, we need to have what God wants us to have. And I believe firmly that. You know that uh, everybody's everybody is important here, everybody's opinion is important of where we're going. I know that this is a great spiritual bunch here, and we, we joke and laugh and, and talk have fun together, which is fun, but I know that the bottom line is that there's a a great spiritual depth to this body here, and I thank God for that so i I lean very heavily on what you suggest or what you say and listen to everything that everybody tells me. so be thinking about that where you want to go, what do you want to do? I've got some ideas, but you know I don't want to you know, uh, I want to do what God wants us to do. So think about it, pray about it, and then let me know what you think. But anyway, <clears throat> the book of Nehemiah, as you have uh, been well aware, we have been uh, rebuilding the walls here, rebuilding the, putting the gates back up in Nehemiah chapter 3 and chapter 4. We chose the book of Nehemiah because the book of Nehemiah is such an interesting book as far as showing us uh, really Uh, what we need to have as a church. Now, I know that Nehemiah was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it's about a time period long before the church ever came into effect. But yet we also know from the Bible that the Bible is the unique book that everything in the Old Testament usually foreshadows something that's going to take place in the New Testament. We know that the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament was the city of God. We know that Jerusalem was the focal point of God's plan. And uh, we see it under Solomon, where all the world is coming in to see the glory uh, under Solomon. And we know that, uh, that, that they went into that city through these gates. And we know that now Jerusalem lies desolate. It's under Gentile domination. The times that the Gentiles have come in and, and the nation of Israel is in a real mess. And we see that the gates are off the hinges. The walls are torn down. And when we see Nehemiah goes back, the first thing that he does is repair those gates. Because those gates are imperative to the plan of God. Now in the New Testament scenario, we know that there's no city that is the central focal point of God, but God works through a local church. God's plan is a local church, but within that local church are individual bodies of Christ, the temples of Christ, and uh, you and me, and we make up that, and where in the Old Testament, as I've said many times, all the world comes to the city to worship, the temple to worship. In the New Testament, we take our temple to the world. That's why we have missions. That's why uh, our job is to train young men and young ladies, moms and dads, in the Word of God, that God will send them out wherever they need to go. And we start in our own city, winning people to Christ, telling them the story of Christ, and then branching out as God leads us from there. I've got, you know, in time, as God opens up the door, I've got some great concepts for a for missions program as far as a missionary that you're, that you're all going to love. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about in time as God gives us, God's given us just everything we need. You ever notice how he's provided everything? I mean, put this building, we're up here, we didn't have a, we didn't have a piano player, he was a piano player. We didn't even have a piano. He gave us a piano. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you what. God has just given us everything that we need. And uh, it's, it's just great. And that's the way He does. You're going to see that today. Because today, like we said, we've talked about the nine gates. Those nine gates representing what this church needs to have. Because people came in through those gates. And each one of them represents something different that this church needs to offer to people. But those gates are all outward. Uh, people went into the city through them. Today we're going to talk about what is behind the scenes. You know that for everything that God does outward, there's an inward. For every outward movement there's an inward. Whatever you do outwardly, the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks it because of something inward. If you do something right for God, it isn't because uh, you've done. Uh, you're such a great person. I hear people all the time get up and introduce people, you know, to preach, and they always say, "Well, you know, I want to. You want to hear this is a great man of God." Now, I understand what they're saying, but let me just tell you the truth. There are no great men of God. There are just common, ordinary men who are used by a great God. Now, that's what it is. Now, I'm not fighting anybody, and I know you know honor to whom honor is due. But let's state with the reality of things here. For anything somebody does outwardly, we'd say, wow, what a great thing. You know why? It's because of something inward. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that in the Bible or not. You know the Ten Commandments? When you look at the Ten Commandments, you realize that there's four, that there's inward to God, and then there's six, that's outward to man. Everything. Everything is that way. You, as a Christian, you have an inward man and an outward man. We call the old nature and the new nature. And for everything that is good or bad, whatever the case, outwardly, It started from something inwardly. And today I want to look at these nine gates from a different perspective. We've looked at them outwardly. We've looked at them as they're portrayed in the Bible, as nine openings in this wall where people go in, and we've seen the spiritual application to it. But now I want to talk to you behind the scenes. Something was taking place behind the scenes here that made a difference. Something took place behind the scenes that changes the perspective and gives us an understanding of what God is doing outwardly. And to miss what God was doing inwardly and only focus on what God is doing outwardly is a terrible mistake for us because we need to see the source. Now we've heard this phrase before. You've heard it for years. I've preached it for years, but it's a true statement. Churches, you come in two categories. You have have works that are of God and you have works that are for God. I don't want to work here for God. I want to work here of God. A work of God suggests that whatever is outward is because of whatever is inward. And I think that studying the book of Nehemiah, we do a great injustice if we look at the gates and the walls and see all the outward stuff, but don't take time to look at what was behind the scenes inwardly. So I want to begin reading here in chapter 1 and read a couple of verses. And we're going to kind of jump around in these couple of chapters here. But bear with me here. It says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chrislew, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Haneah, one of my brethren, came he and certain men of Judea. And I asked them concerning the Jews... Uh, that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the providence are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also was broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Notice how he puts the And all that he says, the one thing that he gets specific about is the walls and the gates. They're important. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do. We love you so much, and we thank you for those that are here today. We thank you for the time that we can spend uh, in studying your word, and we ask you today to give us an insight, Father, behind the scenes. Lord, we've seen this picture of, of Jerusalem and the walls, and we know what it means to our church. We know that our church needs to have these things in place, that people would get saved, that people would be able to come in and be nurtured and be given all that God wants them to have. But, Lord, we need to look beyond that now. We need to look and see and understand what went on behind the scenes that made this possible. Because that is the difference for a church that is a work of God than a church that is a work for God. Help us today, Father, in all that we do. And we'll thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a number of things that I want to look at here today, and we want to and they come to light as you read this. But the first thing I want you to see as we look deeper at what God's doing here is that that God has a group of men. God has a group of men here, and I'm sure women too. God has a group of men here built around a man, and that man is Nehemiah. And the first thing that we need to understand is behind the scenes that is that Nehemiah has a burden. He has a burden. And God's man or God's men, whatever you're going to do, you have to have a burden. And you know, we all know that. And you know, if you would say that to the average person, they'd say, well, that's no revelation. I understand what a burden is, but I'm going to talk to you about it in a greater depth because I want you to see what's taking place here. Now look at chapter 1 again. It says down here, it says that, uh, Hanaiah, one of my brethren, came he and certain men. And certain men of Judea, and asked them, and I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, and they were left in captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And he said unto me, the remnant that are left in the captivity are in the promise in great affliction and reproach. And the walls are broken down. He says. And he says in verse four. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now the Bible says in Proverbs chapter twenty-nine, uh, in verse eighteen, it says, except. Uh, uh, if, the, if the people have no vision, they perish. If there is no vision, the people perish. Now, the vision goes along with a burden. But the problem is, you talk to the average Christian today, you say, do you have a burden? They say, yeah. Do you have a vision? They say, yeah. When you read Nehemiah chapter 1, from the surface here, as you read this, if I were to ask you what you would got here, somebody would say to me, well, you've got Nehemiah's burden here. Nehemiah is laying out his burden." But that's not exactly true. What we have here is not just Nehemiah laying out his burden. What we've got here is Nehemiah laying out God's burden. And that's the difference. It does you and me no good to have a burden if it's not God's burden. We can get burdened by all kinds of things. The question is, do you even know what God's burden is today? Somebody says, well, it's for lost souls. It's for this and for that. Hey, get specific. Do you understand in your life the burden that God has given you or the lack of burden God has given you? Because Nehemiah, as you study him here, you know what? He only wants what God wants. He doesn't have any personal agenda. We live in a day and age where everybody got something they want for themselves. Oh, I'll get a burden for God, but I want this out of it. Nehemiah doesn't come to God that way. He comes to God with God's burden. And it always struck me is, is how in the world did he really get God's burden? I mean, here's a time and place where God really isn't writing anything. God is not coming down and talking to anybody like he did in the Old Testament. We're about to enter that 400 silent years where God doesn't give any revelation to anybody till Christ shows up. And here's a man, as you read it, That's got a burden. And it's very obvious. It moves him to the place where he he weeps. He sits down and he weeps. And then he begins to pray. But his burden is so clearly understood, if you know anything about the Bible at all, that he just didn't have a burden. He had God's burden. And that's what makes the difference. As I said before, it does me no good to have a burden for whatever if it isn't God's burden. And there's a process you and I have to go through in our life to grow to the point spiritually that you make sure that your burden that you have is the same burden that God's got. Now the next thing I see down through here, God's man has to have a prayer. Now notice I didn't say God's man has to pray. I believe you have to pray. I believe prayer is an intimate part of your life and learning how to pray and how not to pray is very important. But this man has a specific prayer. And my question to you and to this church is, as we learn God's burden, and as you understand what God's burden is, then you understand how to more intelligently pray about what God wants to accomplish. Now, I'll just give you the answer real quick. In the Old Testament, he's praying about Jerusalem. He understands that Jerusalem is the city of God. He understands that Jerusalem is is the program of God and his prayer is almost as good as uh, the first part. Look what he says in verse five. And said I, he sits down in verse four and he begins to pray. What a great prayer! And said I, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love Him and observe His commandments, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, uh, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest, thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word of thy commandments, uh, thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, uh, transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations." When he prays, his prayer isn't for himself. His, this guy is so in tune with God, he has such a burden for the program and the plan of God that when he prays to God, there's nothing in there for himself. He's praying for the mission of God which has been canceled. The mission of God was that all the world would see God's glory. And because of sin and ungodliness and God's people turning away from God, turning away from the Word of God and doing their own thing, at this time in the book of Nehemiah, the plan and the program of God for planet Earth has been shut down as far as in operation sense. God is still behind the scenes, God is still in control, God has got a plan that's going to work this whole thing out, but the bottom line is, Nehemiah has a burden because he knows part of that plan is Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is out of the place where they need to be. And let me just say this to you today. I I look at this and I think to myself, uh, how in the world, how in the world did he get that burden? How in the world did he know how to pray? Did you ever did you ever go through and look at Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 3? It's a great prayer. He's the greatest king that Israel ever had. And when he prays, now here's a man that is the wisest man the world has ever seen. Here's a man that could go anywhere in the world in the time and the whole world would reverence him and, and, and look at him in awe. And yet when he asks, when God says, what do you want to be king? Study that prayer. He didn't pray for himself. He prayed for the people God gave him. He understood a burden. He saw it. He understood it. He prayed for wisdom. He didn't pray for riches. He didn't pray for fame or notoriety. He prayed for wisdom to lead God's people. And in fact, he says, I'm a child. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to lead. God, give me the wisdom. Why? For your people. Why? Because you have a plan and a program. And I've got to be the very best I can be to run that for you. God made him a great wise man and a great one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. I look at things like that and I I think, how did he understand that? How did he get a burden? How did he see how did Nehemiah understand that? Did you ever ever see the feel the real burden of God uh, Christ in in his first coming in Matthew? He gives it to you so clearly. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus overlooking Jerusalem, he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou hast. Killed the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto you. He says, How often would I have gathered you like children together, even as a hen gathered her children under her wings, and you would not? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, Blessed is he that cometh in the name, I say unto you that ye shall not see me henceforth until ye say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Christ's burden was for Israel when he came. He stands on that hill and he looks at Jerusalem and he's so burdened inside because he understands that that nation is the people of God that God has chosen through Abraham who someday their seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. And he sees the world in control of God's people. He sees God's people in desolation. He sees once a mighty nation that was powerful now left destitute and it burdened. How did Nehemiah get Christ's burden 500 years before Christ ever showed up? How did Solomon understand what his prayer should be in 1,000 B.C., 400 years before Nehemiah? We go through our lives as Christians and we, we pray about things that we think we ought to pray for. We talk about having a burden. But let me ask you a question. Is your burden God's burden? And I'm not talking about, well, I have a burden for my family or burden for lost people. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what is your specific prayer? Oh, I'm not talking about why I pray to my kids who all get saved and they'll be healthy and I'm praying for this or that or the preacher or praying for this. I'm talking about when you look at the whole world today and you see America in the same mess that Jerusalem was in in disarray as far as the church concerned with no Bible no teaching nobody there nobody getting saved a bunch of just uh, a froth and just uh, a surface stuff what is your prayer what is your prayer for this church Nehemiah came in and Nehemiah when they brought that into him he, he wept and that brings us to the next thing. Nehemiah understands the problem with Israel. He understands what the issue is. For he says up here in verse 9, but if he, he says, or verse 8, Remember, I beseech thee the word uh, that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among, all, among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they were of you cast to the uttermost part of the heaven. Yet I will gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. See, he understands the issue. Do you know what the basic issue is? They've gotten away from God's word. They're doing their own thing. And yet, if you'd walk into the nation of Israel at that time, you'd see all the priests in the right place. You'd see them still doing the sacrifices. You'd see them going through all the religious movements that they were supposed to. They had the the aurora being what God wanted them to be. They had all the pomp and circumstance, but they didn't have any power of God in their lives. They're like most churches today. My kids years ago, when they were little, I don't know who bought this for them, but it was a great little deal. It was a thing where it was like a, a little dashboard of a car. And it had a steering wheel, it had a horn, it had a key, it had all kinds of things you could flip and switches on it. And it was, to me, it was a great thing to occupy their time when I had something. You just set them on the, on the floor, turn the TV on, and they would they ram the gears, turn the keys, honk the horn do the wheels. And I remember one day as I was walking through there and Kelly and Jamie both were going to town. I mean, they were, they were just making the noises, you know, and ramming the gears and turning all the switches and everything. And I thought to myself, you know what, that is so much like most churches. There's a lot of movement, a lot of action, but there ain't nothing hooked up. And that's what I see today. I see a lot of action. A lot of movement. A lot of things, but nothing's hooked up. We got burdens about everything except God's burden. We're like the nation of Israel. We're like the nation of Israel that 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 is in total disarray. The gates are off the wall. And he says, "God, I know the problem. You told us in your word that if we transgressed your law and forgot your statutes and didn't do what's right with your judgment, that you would scatter us. And God did. And he says, Lord, but I also know that, Lord, you said if we get back to the book and we get back to those statutes, no matter where we were to the uttermost parts of heaven, you'd gather us together. I'm saying that to say this. I believe And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I believe that in the day and age of the Laodicean church that we are part of, I believe that God will build a Philadelphian Bible-believing church in a Laodicean church period. I believe it takes two things. I believe it takes nine gates outwardly that a church has to have that recognizes where people's needs are, recognizes how people come in. But I believe it takes something on the inside. Something more than just, well, yeah, I got the right Bible. Something more than, yeah, I know what I believe. I believe. I'm not ta- I'm talking about do you have God's burden? Do you understand what God's doing? I mean, we're living in a confusing time today. If there's ever a time where, as the book of Proverbs chapter 22 and chapter 23 says, that we've lost the landmarks. If there's ever a time that we are in the fields of the fatherless, that as Christians, we don't know where we've come from. We don't know what we believe. We don't know why we exist. All we know is we get up, we go to church, we read our Bibles. We don't know anything about them. We don't know where we, we don't know why we're a member of this church. We just know that I'm here. We know no history of where we come from, no history of where we've been. Nothing is going on and we just go through the daily routines. Well, in laboratories in Kansas City, Milwaukee, Chicago, L.A., New York, there's little lab rats that do the same thing on a daily basis. What is the difference... The difference is that we as God's people one should have God's burden have God's prayer understand that where we're at today in the 21st century we're standing on the very verge of the second coming of Christ that needs to be our focus the horse gate we talked about it the east gate we talked about it and ought to be doing God's business in a world where it's wrecked and ruined Christianity where all the gates are I'm not going to stand here and tell you we're the only salvation of the world as this church there are other churches that are doing the the work and doing a job but I'm saying forget them this church needs to function and operate like we were the only one doing it even though we're not and I'm not such a fool as to think that we're the only ones but our attitude ought to be boy that we've got a job to do and it takes everybody it takes us getting people saved and it takes the time of spending time helping somebody that's why I'm willing to spend whatever time it takes that's why I do whatever I could do for anybody that gets saved. You know why? Because we have a mandate. We have a mission. I'm not just doing it because, oh, well, I'm a preacher and that's what preachers do. Preachers don't do that, preachers administrate. I do it because I know we've got a, we've got a burden and we've got a plan, and God has something that He wants us to accomplish. The gates are down. I mean, look at this thing. He says over here in chapter 1, he says, when the guys first come in verse 3, he says, says, also uh, uh, the the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, the gates thereof are burnt with fire. You come over in chapter 2, verse 3, and what does he say? And all the things that are happening in both cases, they put the emphasis on, look at that, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. That was the main issue. The main issue is the gates are down. People can't get into the city to find God. And I'm telling you what's wrong with the church today. The gates are down. They're just just interested in how many get there. How much money do you bring? What can you do for me? When the issue is the church is here for you, the Word of God and your attitude toward it is the key to restoring uh, this church, restoring Christianity, just like it was the the attitude and it was the key to restoring the city in Nehemiah's time gates are down people can't get into the city that's our that's our burden getting people into the family of god getting them in through the gates that are biblical gates and showing them and teaching them and giving them everything for their families for themselves for the jobs for the world that we live in because it's real confusing out there you look at the political arena it's confusing you look at the medical world it's confusing you look at christianity it's confusing oh thank god God give us a book that straightens all that out. So we see that, we see that God's man has to have a burden. We see that God's man has to have a prayer. And we see that God's men have to understand what the real problem is. I just get tickled to death when I hear religious people talk about what the problem is in America. They want to blame it on, first of all, they always want to blame it on the devil. I realize the devil's a wicked person, and I don't give him any due at all, other than what God does on the thing. But let me just tell you this: the devil's not the source of your problems or America's problems. Oh, he may have got the idea going, but then he went on his way to someplace else. The real problem in America has got nothing to do with, with the, uh, the breakdown of the school system, though that's a terrible thing. Somebody said, well, when they took prayer out of schools, man, they really destroyed the thing. Well, I'm all for prayer in schools, and I think it was wrong. But let me tell you, taking prayer out of the school didn't destroy anything. You know where it got destroyed? It got destroyed in the pulpits of our churches when they quit preaching the Word of God. It got when preachers wanted to make you happy so you wouldn't leave instead of preaching what you needed to hear. It got to that place when great crowds came in, and everybody and, and, and preachers said, Wow, I mean, I used to be in a system where they had Sunday school contests across the country. We'd pick a church way out there on the East Coast, someplace. We'd have a Sunday school campaign, and it was all about how many can we get? How many can we have? And we didn't care whether they were saved, they were lost, what they struggled with. We just wanted you to be here so we could count you. And once we're done and we won the little trophy, go ahead and go home. That's America. Preachers shouldn't care how many come to church. I mean, you want people to come. But if that becomes your focus and you say, well, if I, if I got 150 people here today, I can really preach. If only 20 show up, well, I don't know if I can preach as good. There's something wrong with you. God help the only one that ever shows up on Sunday morning when the rest of you decide not to come because I'll whack your tail just like I do everybody else's. <laughs> we'll change some things. There won't be a left side or right side. We'll put you right down here, man. You see, you can preach that way when you have a burden, when you understand the problem, when you understand what we need to do. I'm telling you, we're in the ministry for the wrong reason. We want notoriety. We want to be on television. We want to be nationally known. We want to get involved in politics. We want to go lead this march and lead that. And I'm not saying some of those marches aren't good things. But I'm saying don't let that take the place of God's burden in understanding what the job is of the church today. Then another thing we need to look at here. Boy, this is, this is an incredible thing too. Oh, when you see the outward man, you've got to see the inward. And you've got to look at the men that God had here. You know, God when you look at this and you study it and you put this together with other things throughout the word of God it's an incredible. You know that God has a timetable for everything. I don't know if you know that or not. A man's going to be on this earth 6000 years and the 7000 years is going to be the millennium. You can find that all the way through the Bible. Dispensation of the fullness of time, that's called. Fullness of time. God has a date. Genesis chapter 15 verse 16, he told Abraham, he says, you're going to have to be down in Egypt, nation of Israel, for 430 years. There was a time. The book of Ecclesiastes said there's a time to be born. Hebrews says there's a time to die. Romans chapter 11 talks about the times of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21 talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. How could you miss it? When Christ was on this earth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he said it, I don't know how many times, when his mother said, Why aren't you doing this? He would keep saying this, Mine hour is not yet come. God has a timetable for everything. And in the book of Nehemiah, we see that timetable fulfilled. Because whether you know it or not, you have the right guy in the right place at the right time. And God was ready to do something. You know what my biggest problem is as a Christian? i got two problems, and you do too. My two problems is either getting ahead of God or getting behind God. That's my big problem. Those are my two biggest problems. I either get ahead of God or I get behind God. Where we need to be is right with God. That's where Nehemiah was. That's where Nehemiah was. I mean you ever look at Matthew chapter four, when the devil shows up, he tries to get he tries to get he tries to get Christ to do four things. And all those things are the all those things are the right thing at the wrong time. And that's what the devil wants us to do as the church. He wants us to do the right thing at the wrong time. Getting ahead of God or getting behind God. And yet when I look at this in chapter, uh, these chapters down here, I see right on the money, God has a timetable. And the timing is incredible. God has the right man at the right place at the right time who has the right burden, who has the right prayer, who has the right people around Him to do the job that God wants to get done. And I believe the mark of spiritual maturity is simply always keeping the burden of God with the timing of God. It does you no good to have a burden if it's not God's burden. It does you no good to pray if it, you don't understand God's prayer for the time and the age that you live in. And it does you no good to have the prayer and the burden if you don't understand God's timing and the thing. That's hard for us as Americans to grab a hold of, isn't it? Because we're so impatient. You see, the devil built a society around us that's just the opposite of that. We live in a fast society. My mom and dad, when I was growing up, they waited, gee, I don't know, they waited probably, they were married probably for 15 years before they they bought their first house. Saved every dime they could. Now today we can go out and buy one just like that. Cars are the same way. When I was in high school, you didn't get a car when you were in high school. You know when you got a car? When you got a job and could buy your own. Not today today kid's a sophomore. He demands a car. He thinks he earns it. I'm not saying he shouldn't have one. I'm saying that's a society we live in. We used to go and have family meals together around the house. Every once in a while we'd go out to eat. and Then somebody came up with the idea where we could have a fast food place where you didn't have to sit down and rest. You could hurry up and eat and hurry up and go. McDonald's was the first one. I ate at the first McDonald's in Canton, Ohio. Still there today. Hamburgers were 15 cents. French fries were a nickel not a piece for a bag of them. <laughs> and it was, it was revolutionized as, as a fast food place, giving you an alternative to just the slow, mom don't have to cook, mom don't have to spend hours, now you can go get fast food. And that was a real thing in our society. Pretty soon it wasn't fast enough. Then you had to have a drive-through faster place to eat at the fast food place because going in wasn't fast enough anymore. You see, we look at that and we just accept it as society, but that all is subtly built around the fact to get you and me as God's people not to want to wait on God. You know the greatest virtue you can have with a child of God? It's patience. Waiting on God is the hardest thing to do. I mean, in everything in our society, it's built around that. I mean, it used to be that you would <coughs> send a letter to somebody, you had to wait three or four days to get an answer. Not now you get on the internet and you just talk to them or call them up on the phone around the world. And when I was a kid going to school, you know, you never like to wear brand new shoes. Teacher would get up there and she'd see Billy with new shoes on, you know, and everybody would stand up and say, see my new shoes. See, you remember that? I used to hate that. I never would wear new shoes. It used to embarrass you to death. No kid wanted them. So you'd scuff them, you know, and you'd tear them up. I mean, you didn't want anybody to say, oh, you got new shoes. No, they're not new. No, I do. I painted them this morning. They're not new. You hate that. Because it, it puts you out, because there's something about being, being that worn look that you're in. It always bothered me The kids didn't want to have a fresh, clean, spotless look. They always wanted to get a worn look. Why is that? You know, when you got saved, you got a spotless, clean look. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to give you back that old worn look. So he does. I don't know how many times a kid, 14, 15 years old, I used to wash my jeans to get them to fade. You didn't want to wear new shoes. You didn't want to wear new jeans. They just didn't feel right. They looked too blue, <laughs> too new. It's just like, yeah, I just, yeah, oh, you walk in and say, okay, I just got a new jeans and new shoes. Here I am. <laughs> so you'd, and you liked them after you had them about six months and you wore them, you got them dirty, and they began to fade, and they began to look a little worn. Then you're in. Nobody said, oh, you got worn. No, worn is the exception. So somebody in the marketing figured that out. And now you pay $50 a pair for old worn-out jeans. I even saw something the other day. They had the knees cut out of them. When well, you bought it that way. What is wrong with us? We're a society that not only can we not wait on God, we can't wait for our jeans to wear out so that we're in. You know, in America... A fast food restaurant like McDonald's employs more employees than U.S. Steel does. What does that tell you? It tells you that we're in a hurry. And I know that Christians, even though as hard as we try, we're not in this world, we're of this world. My my daughters years ago, and I tell this story, Kelly, I know she remembers this story because she wanted to be a cheerleader. Remember this story, honey? It was a great story, wasn't it? Would you like to stand up and tell it? Okay, I'll <laughs> tell it. She wanted to be a cheerleader, and you know, me as dad, <coughs> I don't want her to be a cheerleader. I don't want her to get that crowd, though. That I mean, I'm not saying that some people couldn't do it and be a good testimony, but I just didn't. I just that's not what I wanted for. And and I'm you know, <coughs> I, I'm trying to be philosophical, you know. And I'm trying. I don't. I would never. I was never a dad who just said no. I always took the Bible, tried to explain to some form, maybe not very successful, why they said, I'll never forget. I told her the story of how that, I told her the story how that if somebody worked in a flour mill and they went in there and they didn't, they were very honest, very open, was never going to steal flour. But just because they were around the flour mill, when they came home, they had flour all over them. And I said, you know what, that's the way the world is. And you go to work in a flour mill, as hard as you try to stay clean, you're going to come home with flour all over you. And you go into a situation in the world like that, as hard as you try, you're going to come home with the world all over you. And I'm telling you, it's one of those things that it creeps into our lives as Christians, even though we don't want it to, even though we try to protect our children from it. Even though we try to go through all those things, the, we live in a society that wants everything right now and it's so fast and it's so moving and everything is, it has to be the way we want it right now and in our Christian lives it becomes the same way and that old flower gets on us because we're not of this world but we're in this world and we go through all these things and we carry this thing if we come home with it and pretty soon we forget that the fact what God's burden is, we forget what God's prayer is and we're in this thing caught up and we're going to church but we don't know why we don't have any purpose, we don't have any plan we don't have any reason for being here this morning. We just, because if I didn't, Bob was going to call me and find out where I was or, or, or you know, I, I'm supposed to go. Why are you supposed well, I don't know because we've just always we done it. There has to be more to it than that. But that's what creeps into our society. And we lose the plan. We lose the vision. We lose the burden. And Christianity just becomes going through the motions. And we don't want to wait on God and we get way ahead of God or way behind God when God wants us to be right where we're at. I want you to look in just a moment. Look at God's timing here. This is incredible. Right man, right place, right time. God's got a burden. That burden was for the nation of Israel to become the great nation that it was again. It's in disarray. But God looks down and He finds a group of people that have His burden. They got his burden. They got his burden because no matter what everybody else was doing, they were staying true to God and His Word. The fact that Israel departed from the statutes, forsook the judgments, didn't do what's right with the law, Nehemiah did. And because he did, he's there now and he understands in the midst of turmoil God's burden, God's prayer, and God's plan. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, In the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I have not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates, there it is again, thereof are consumed with fire. Now, when you look at this, I I can't read chapter 2 verse 1 without reading chapter 1 verse 11 because it's really the key. Just the last sentence. We'll read the whole verse. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine heart be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Period. Then one little statement, just a little statement, which really doesn't need to be in here because who cares? But the statement is this, For I was the king's cupbearer. Right man, right place, right time. He had God burden, he had God prayer, and God orchestrated the circumstances that here Nehemiah is in the presence of the one man that can turn things around, and God just happened to make him his cupbearer. How did that happen? He's the king cupbearer, and he comes in. And the Bible says in these first four verses that he's sorrowful. He just got a report. The king looks down and says, What's the matter? Are you sick? No. Well, then it must be something heavy on your heart. Tell me. Tell me what you need. And he's afraid now because he's on the spot. But oh, oh, I love this. He throws up what we call in Christianity, one of these Nehemiah prayers. He says down there, he says, Verse two says, "Then I was very sore afraid and said unto the king." In other words, he's praying while he's praying while he's talking. You ever been in that situation? It usually happens when a state highway patrolman comes up and asks for your driver's license. It usually happens when something bad goes on in your life and you're praying, you're talking to somebody and he's just going to pot around you and at the same time you're talking to them, you're saying, oh God, help me and get me out of this mess. That's called a Nehemiah prayer. He's afraid. Here he is. The king has now said, what does you need? He's afraid to tell him. So he's throwing up a prayer to God saying, oh God, give me the words to say. And you know what he does in verse down through, in verse 5? And I said unto the king, If it pleased the king and the servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah unto the city of my father's shepherds, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, The queen also sitting by it. Now, I just got to make a comment on that. <laughs> That's one of the strangest things in all the Bible. You know that? Why does it have to be the queen? I'll tell you why. You know who that queen is? If you know your Bible... You know the books of the Bible and how this thing lays out? That's Esther. Remember Esther? The Jewish queen that got on the throne when the Gentile queen got knocked off the throne. There's a Jewish queen sitting on that throne next to that king who God's got the right woman in the right place at the right time to get the right ear of the right king for the right man at the right place at the right time to get the right job done for God with the right burden, the right prayer. That's why. You think God just threw that in there for oh ho ho, we got some extra space. Put it if the queen was there with him. No, 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 no. That queen is somebody for a reason there. And I'm telling you, when you lay it out and you put it out, it can only be one queen who that is. It's Queen Esther. God's got a plan. God's got a burden. And God's got not only the right man, God's got the right woman. He's got everything in the and he's got the right men with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he explains it. He says, "He says, I'm giving you my burden. I need you to, I need to go rebuild. And the king said, with the queen sitting by him, For how long shall the journey be? How well will I return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it pleased the king, now he's getting bold. Let letters be given to me to the governor beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's fort, that he may give me timber to make uh, beams for the gates and for the palace which uh, pertain to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according, according, according to the good hand of my God upon me. God had a plan. Every New Testament principle for building the church is in this chapter. Inwardly. You want to get the gates? There's outwardly how to build it. But you can't build it outwardly without understanding what was going on behind the scenes inwardly. It wasn't just, oh, ho ho, we're going to go down and rebuild the gates and put the gates back on and build the wall. No! God's plan was there for 70 years and finally God raised up a man and some men and put the woman in the right place, put the man in the right place, put the right timing and everything in the right place. And he had the right burden. He had the right prayer. He had everything that he needed. God said, now's the time. And not only does the king send him, the king pays for it. You know why? Great principle. God always pays for what he orders. This idea of somebody going out and doing something and then got to cry over the world for somebody to raise the money to make it happen and repay pay for it. I promise you, God, not in it. Let me tell you something. A principle I live by and I'll die by, and I believe every day of my life. That's why I tell visitors when they come here, you don't have to give a dime, in. I just want you here. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to feel the freedom. I don't want you to think they're after your money. I don't want you to think anything. I don't want you to think. I want you to be the most special person here. I want you to leave here thinking I, he, they made me feel like a, 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 the person that I am. They really love me. They're really warm. They don't want nothing from me. I want you to do that because. Because so the bottom line is, I believe if it's God's church and it's God's people that are here, then God will always pay for what He orders. We're not going to have a bond campaign. We're not going to drive this. We're not going to send you out with little tin cans on the thing there giving you, giving you dimes and nickels. Let me tell you something. If this is God's church and He ordered it, then He will pay for it. If He does not, then it isn't His, then it will flop. If this thing isn't of God and alive with God's power, we are not going to resuscitate it and put it on a life support system. I believe that it is. And I believe in this great chapter here, not only does <laughs> not only does the king sending back, right place, right time, right man, right woman. Not only does the king send him, the king pays for it. And verse 8 says, And the king granted me according. Not to the king. Not because of Nehemiah. Not because of anybody other than the good hand of my God which was upon me. Let me tell you something. When the hand of God is upon you, there's nobody going to stop you. There's nothing going to slow you up. But you know what it takes to have that? It takes God's man having the right burden. It takes God's man and God's woman having the right prayer. It takes God man and God woman being in the right place at the right time with the right circumstances and understanding what the problem is and realizing that God is the author of time. And God's timing in your life and my life is Everything. God's timing and building this church and pulling the people together and doing what He did. I mean, it is everything. Because we've got a group of people here that I firmly believe with all my heart understand the burden, understand the prayer, understand what needs to be done and what the problem is. And even if you don't fully grasp it, you are willing to learn it. That's all that God can ask. And I just believe, like, the, I believe just like back in Nehemiah's time, the king said, Go ahead and build what God wants you to build and I'll take care of it. I believe God looked down from heaven and he says to us, go ahead and build a work. My good hand is upon you and I'll give you everything you need to get it done. Boy, so far, so good. I believe with all of my heart that God brings the right people to the right place at the right time that needs to be done. And I believe you're not here by any accident. I believe through the process of this, I've learned some things over the years. I've learned that when you start something for God and you do something, you know, everybody gets on the bandwagon. Everybody's excited. It only takes about a month, a month and a half. Then you start to see who really is and who is. And I've learned this. The the ones that you think are gonna really do it are never the ones that really do it. And out of nowhere, God brings the people that you would never suspect to get the job done that gets done. I'll never forget my first time I came to Kansas City. They sent they sent <laughs> they sent two guys. From the college class where i was going to work out to pick me up at the airport i don't even remember their names but i i'll never forget it they picked me up you know and they were telling me all what their jobs were and what they did and, and how glad they were to have me here and i thought them and I, and I was pretty dumb and naive then i thought well if everybody's just like these two guys man this is going to be a piece of cake these guys are these guys are really gone these guys got it together this is going to be easy Da-da-da. you know what from that day when i started i never saw those two guys ever again and God taught me a great lesson. He taught me the people you think are going to do it aren't really going to do it. It's going to be the ones you never think are going to do it going to do it. And I'll tell you what. Through the years, God built the men and the women here that are the pastors in this church with me and 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 and, can, and, and, and run this ministry and know this ministry. <clears throat> but I'm telling, when it comes, I learned I learned something else too. There isn't any one person going to build a church. You're not going to find somebody out there with a million dollars and you're going to say, oh, our problems are over now. Or this guy's going to pay for everything. Or you're not going to find somebody, oh, here's so-and-so. He's a great soul winner. This guy's going to fill our church up with people. Woohoo, our problems are over. No never happens that way. You know what happens? It happens the way God wants it to happen in God's time with God's people. And we all get our nose right down in the dirt and we win them one at a time. We love them. We take care of them. We spend the time with them. That's why I'm willing to spend time with any man or any woman in this building that wants to learn the word of God. I'll help you, however, at your own pace. And I'll give you whatever you need to get the job done because I believe that God has a plan for you whether it involves this church right now or down the line whatever the case may be that's not my care my care is you're saved you're on your way to heaven and you want to learn something about God I want to help you get there right man right place right timing oh what a great story when you see the gates that are all on that wall and all those people going in And they're rebuilding it, and all the work that's being done, and all the excitement, and all the happenings on the outside as people are singing and building those walls and talking about how great it is to be back where God wants to be. But do you stop and look at the inside of what really got you there? Because whatever outward movement you have to take you this way, there's an inward movement that directed you, whether it's good or whether it's bad. No movement on the outside will ever happen without something happening on the inside. It's true of your life, it's true of this church true Jerusalem, true everything in this world. There'll have to be an inside force that always precipitates the outside direction. And in this case, it was the right man, the right place with the right men, the right women, and everything in the right spot. And God's timing said, okay, let's build. And they built. And that's where we're at. That's why everybody's important. No matter where this church goes, whatever it does, you always, everybody will be important. But I recognize the fact that there is not one person in any church where it all hangs. It all hangs together with everybody. Only, a chain will only be as strong as its weakest link. A wall will be only as strong as the weakest brick. And a church will only be as strong as the weakest individual in it. And that's why we're to be there for each other, to encourage each other, to edify each other. That's why everything we do has to have a bottom line to prepare you whatever God wants you to do. Right man, right place right time. Father,